Welcome to this podcast episode on the future of countering terrorist financing. I'm joined today by several distinguished uh, guests. They include Josh Geltzer, founding executive director of the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and visiting professor at Georgetown Law School, formerly of the NSC, where he was the senior director for counterterrorism. Also, Tom Keating, director of the Center for Financial Crime and Security Studies at RUSI in London, and formerly worked as a banker at JP Morgan for a number of years. Dave Murray, vice president at the Financial Integrity Network, a former senior advisor to the undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And Chris Doucette, director of government affairs at Chain Analysis, and formerly of the US Treasury Department as well. Thank you all for being with me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. Let's start today with you, Tom. Will you lay down an overview for us of how efforts to fight terrorist financing have evolved since uh, over the last 20 years, roughly? Uh, you can give us a couple of policy high notes um, and any challenges that you see that have evolved and developed in that time. Okay, so thanks for, for having me. So I'd like to go back to 1999 when the UN uh, passed the suppression, the Convention on Suppression of Financing of Terrorism. Um, but you can see that at the time of 9-11, uh, really the world was not taking terrorist financing seriously, or at least as an international issue, because only four countries had ratified that convention at the time of 9-11. Obviously, immediately following 9-11, uh, the building blocks of what we've now come to know as the Global Counter-Terror Finance Strategy uh, were put in place. So the Financial Action Task Force with its additional recommendations, Executive Order 13224 uh, uh, in the United States, uh, and then the criminalizing of uh, terrorist financing in various countries increasingly uh, around the world. So that's where we started. Uh, I think what, what has happened since then uh, has been you know, further rollout of um, the FATF recommendations. Uh, countries are trying to uh, put in place uh, what the international community believes is a counter-terror finance strategy or a response to terrorist financing. I think the question that we face nowadays is having built the foundations and having built pretty firm foundations over the last 15 to 20 years, what are we trying to do as relates to countering terrorist financing? And I think that's a question that nobody has really managed to, to answer and is something that we should be kind of taking seriously. What are some of the leading answers to the question, what are we trying to do? Well, I think, first of all, um, we need to frame the, the question, how are we trying to assess uh, success around counter-terror finance? So um, are we looking at the number of people arrested and prosecuted for terrorist financing? No, I don't think that's a good metric. Are we trying to look at the amount of assets frozen? No, that's probably not a good metric um, either. I think what we're trying to figure out is to what extent can um, an, an analysis of, an assessment of uh, the disruption of finance help us uh, in our counterterrorism efforts. And that's clearly going to vary depending on the threat that we're trying to tackle, the funding modus operandi of the threat that we're trying to tackle, uh, and, uh, and then the response that we, uh, that we put in place. So I think part of the, the challenge has been we built this framework with big building blocks. Actually, we need to be much more granular now in the way that we approach terrorists and their financing uh, and think about uh, the threat uh, on, a, on a modus operandi basis. Thank you. Chris, I want to turn to you for um, an analysis of how terrorism financing itself has changed over the last 20 years, and what are the, some of the different tools and mechanisms that terrorists are using to finance 
their activities, uh, and uh, that that helps speak to the the big the big building blocks that Tom has just uh, put out on the table. Hopefully, we'll we'll put them together with some answers on uh, what can be done to to match them up appropriately. So, first off, to sort of break this problem apart a little, I want to. Um, differentiate between sort of two things on countering terrorist financing. Uh, the difference between sort of financial intelligence and the sources of income. Um, because I think it's it's important to distinguish the relationship information that we can glean from financial intelligence. Um, one thing that um, nobody um, sends money to somebody erroneously. So being able to understand those relationships can help a lot in the uh, network build out, understanding how um, sort of these networks work, but also how these uh, sources of income, right? What are the big foundational sort of financial blocks that keep these groups afloat? And then being able to understand how they move, um, how they store, receive, and send money through the different uh, avenues of whether it's hawalas, money service businesses, wire transfers, um, how they move value. So, um, just being able to uh, sort of separate those two um, determines which part, at least from the U.S. government perspective, what uh, regulatory, law enforcement, or intelligence actions that we need to take to sort of counter these uh, their, uh, these terrorist groups' ability to uh, move money internationally. Let me ask you a question. So you were just talking about groups. What about lone wolf actors? What about understanding how that has changed? That's where I think we go back to the financial intelligence piece, right? Where we look at, um, and unfortunately, it's usually um, after something has happened, right? Where we have to do this uh, post-mortem, you know, understand, you know, where they took out loans or where they held money or who they sent money to. It's very, you know, rarely um, that we're able to sort of uh, uh, get in front of this. And this has always been the big question, right? How are we able to use financial intelligence to prevent some of these actors? We look at these actors because of what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to commit a terrorist attack. They're trying to, um, you know, establish a network for some sort of attack. The the uh, finance is just an investigative piece um, of that larger puzzle. It's not necessarily like these are the uh, the people that are keeping the the group afloat. So I think it's just it's important from a um, we need to to use it to enhance disrupting these plots and actors. Thanks. Let me ask you, Dave about the counterterrorism financing tools in the United States. So Chris just gave us a, some lay down about some of what they are and what they do. I'm interested to hear your views on how they work in practice in, from your experience and whether their greatest utility is in identifying and stopping terrorism financing or in uh, gathering the intelligence that can be used for broader efforts, CT-related, finance-related, or other. Thanks, Liz. It, so, it, I mean, the tools have obviously expanded dramatically um, during the past 20 years, and particularly in the in the post-9/11 era. It, you know, as far as the distinction between between interdiction and then working at the strategic level, I, I know those get get painted as competitors very often. But they really don't need to be competitors. And you know, I think it's important that the regime actually operate at both levels. You, you have to do interdiction. If you have information available that, that helps support interdiction, then obviously you're going to want to use that. But you know, those, those same streams can feed up into strategic level analysis. 
And the strategic level analysis can help policymakers understand better what the impact of their actions will be before they take them and enables policymakers then to really pursue strategic disruption as a, as a realistic goal um, and, to, and to pursue the broader goals for the regime, which is, which is really to protect the international financial system for, for, from abuse, which has been a goal for the Treasury Department going back to the 1990s. Thank you. I want to pull back a bit and look at the role of counterterrorism financing in the broader CT picture. Josh, let me turn to you. Now, you come to this conversation as a counterterrorism expert and practitioner, and in your work at the NSC, you had the opportunity to uh, hear many of the, the thoughts that we've heard from our other guests here um, and consider them amongst other tools available, uh, other pieces of information, and putting together counterterrorism uh, campaigns and efforts. Can you talk about how counterterrorism financing tools fit into the broader counterterrorism work uh, as a, a, a general issue? And then take an example, if you will, from your experience at the NSC, maybe ISIS, where you looked at CTF tools uh, in a specific case and applied them amongst other levers of uh, U.S. authorities or other levers to, to pull. Sure. So, uh, big picture, I think describing the tool or really tool set of counterterrorism financing as among the critical ones in the counterterrorism toolkit is, is exactly right. Often people focus on the military tool for counterterrorism or domestically they focus on uh, investigation and arrests and prosecution, but those are part of a multifaceted tool set and there are quieter ones, there are ones that are operating um, uh, even when there is no uh, apparent disruption occurring, and that includes information sharing across our government, between our federal government, state and locals, and with foreign partners. Uh, that includes diplomatic outreach to try to get those states that are not living up to what we regard as their responsibilities to crack down on terrorist groups to do so, and it, inclu it includes the, the, the regime of counterterrorist uh, financing, which is one that, like other parts of this puzzle, exists partly outside government. It's a, private sector in, in many ways, but there are authorities that governments can use, and then there are those partnerships that try to, to bridge that gap between government and non-government. So to turn to ISIS as a, as a particular example, ISIS was different in a number of respects from the terrorist challenges that a lot of folks had worked very hard on, especially post 9-11. One of those was the degree of wealth that, they, uh, that the group uh, had available to it, and um, another aspect that was different was the, the, the sources. I mean, as, as folks know, ISIS, especially at its territorial peak, um, could draw on oil, could draw on banks whose holdings they quite physically and literally possessed, could draw on taxing local populations, siphoning salaries. The, the, the quasi-state that, that ISIS um, was able to maintain for a brief period of time, uh, which is now dwindling, opened up a whole new set of challenges. But that also meant that it opened up a, a realm of tools available to get at that wealth source that uh, didn't necessarily make sense for other groups, which included, at times, direct military strikes on some of the sources of the wealth, at times ensuring that uh, partners were doing what they were supposed to be doing to crack down on black market sales and other things, and at times using the ordinary, so to speak, parts of this regime, um, such as uh, ensuring that banks were knowing um, the information flows for which they're on the hook. 
So you just mentioned banks. That takes me to the next question I wanted to ask. <clears throat> Looking broadly at the role of banks and other financial institutions, including money services businesses, they play such an important role in helping to understand, analyze uh, counterterrorism financing, uh, and as a partner to uh, law enforcement and intelligence and policy folks who are trying to work to identify and combat it. Tom, I want to ask you to give us an assessment of public-private partnership on terrorism financing today, and please uh, take an international view here and feel free to uh, grade anyone you want. Who, who gets the who gets the best report card on this? Well, I'll start by answering that, um, and perhaps referring to my my own country. Obviously. Uh, in the UK, uh, we've had you know, many years of, of terrorism threat to deal with, and there's a very impressive uh, NTFIU, as you call it, the National Terrorist Financial Investigation Unit, that is dedicated to the investigation of, of terrorist financing. Um, obviously, as been already been mentioned, often um, after after the fact, but then taking the information gathered uh, and hopefully rolling into prevention uh, as well as investigation of existing attacks. And, and what what um, that group has done uh, using this model we have in the UK called the Joint Money Laundering Intelligence Task Force. What that group has done is work very effectively um, with the uh, financial community where it where it makes sense to leverage the fact that, of course, the financial com community have have financial eyes on transactions, um, but of course, interpreting those transactions, particularly as relates to terrorist financing, as opposed to say money laundering is extremely difficult for the financial sector without some kind of hint, some kind of thread to pull on. And that thread obviously uh, is provided by the intelligence community, the law enforcement community that sees the value in leveraging the capabilities um, of the uh, of the bank. So that model um, has developed uh, in, in, the, in the UK. Um, others have started to, to try and uh, emulate that, perhaps not so much uh, as relates to terrorist financing, but certainly uh, from my understanding and my, my sort of tangential involvement uh, with that, uh, it, it has been a highly uh, effective tool and it shows what can be achieved in public-private partnership. It's not the only thing we should be doing. Uh, we can't rely solely on the, 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 the banks and the remittance companies because you know, terrorist financing takes many forms, but it, it, has, it is proving to be effective. It's creating partnerships uh, and it's creating leads that I would argue uh, we wouldn't have were it not for the fact that everyone's sitting around the table uh, and talking as partners rather than as kind of the parent-child relationship which often exists between um, financial institutions and their government uh, oversight overseers. Thank you. Looking at the United States in particular as, a, as one example uh, of a public-private partnership, I want to ask one final question to the other three of you uh, joining me in this conversation, which is how can government and the private sector, particularly in this jurisdiction, exchange information better. How could these two constituencies improve the ability to get at this enigmatic and very serious threat and the terrorist financing threat? So, Starting with you, Josh. Sure. Especially as attacks uh, have gotten cheaper, at least for smaller scale, um, but still lethal attacks, this question of what is what does the money trail look like and is there any way to see something ideally ahead of time that's useful that strikes me as um, potentially moving us in the direction of 
the outside of government network and awareness that's been built in the human trafficking regime, for example, where you have airlines, you have rest stops, you have folks who might see something that if they are trained to pick up on it, strikes them as suspicious, unusual. And um, I think we've gotten to a point where without becoming a, a surveillance state with folks spying on each other, you have some useful reporting going on as to what's being seen, some of which yields nothing, some of which yields um, uh, interdiction. Uh, and it's by no means solved the human trafficking problem, but I think it's a useful contribution. And it strikes me as one um, from which there are lessons to learn in this area, whether that's about travel, uh, things that look strange to a travel agent or modern day uh, travel booking service online based on time of year or how money is spent, or whether it's uh, car rentals given the surge in attacks using those sorts of vehicles, that, that there's a role for education that creates awareness which can then create um, at least an opportunity for law enforcement to hear from willing partners in the private sector. Chris, let me turn to you next. Sure. Um, just to, to add on top of that, um, I think what's important on the private-public partnership is uh, evolution, right? These these terrorist groups, these illicit actors that are using, um, you know, they, they need to, to send money from one place to another, and whether it's through banks or, or whatever uh, informal mechanism they're using, um, that uh, the government needs to have the tools to track those and understand them and sort of, you know... Um, to use the phrase, follow the money. Um, my The company that uh, I am currently working for, Chainalysis, is looking at um, sort of a, the emerging technology of cryptocurrency and being able to use some of the information that's uh, gleaned from the, um, these, these blockchain-based uh, currencies and being able to sort of uh, find those uh, illicit actors. Um, some great uh, case examples looking at uh, human trafficking um, and uh, you know, just trying to understand how uh, an adversary, whether it's a terrorist group, money launderer, um, whatever, how they're using this technology. And I think that one is there's part of a, a education piece and then adapting uh, by providing uh, sort of new tools so that um, existing regulations or working with, um, you know, governments and uh sort of multilateral institutions to help provide uh, what sort of new regulations so that you can pull these bad actors out of um, sort of a, a new emerging technology that will uh, uh, have lots of benefits uh, for, for everyone. So. Dave, over to you for the last word. Yeah, so, you know, I think in the United States, I think one of the, one of the big developments is um, FinCEN's launching a program they're calling FinCEN Exchange. Um, which is bringing the private sector in in a more in a more, in more of a partnership environment um, to discuss emerging illicit finance threats, to discuss trends, to discuss priorities, and you know it was something that was started. Um, the roots of it are in the are in the previous administration. This administration is is expanding it and carrying that forward, and I think that's a really important signal to the private sector that they're looking for that they're looking for partners here and evolving, evolving away from that parent-child relationship that, that Tom discussed. Uh, but you know, that's going to take time. It's going to take time for, for trust to evolve between the, between the banks and the, and the government. Uh, but, it's a, but it's a really good start and it's a really good program. Thanks. Any last words from you, Dave? No. All right. Well, I appreciate you all joining me here for this conversation. This has been a fascinating conversation. Let's do it again soon. Thanks very much. Thank you.